Grace and peace to you friends. Welcome to the Oak Tree Journeys. My name is Mandy Oaks and this is the Encyclopedia Challenge Season 1, Episode 68, June 5th, 2022. And I keep for some reason wanting to say July 5th, 2022. I'm not sure why, um, but I had to fix my notes and I still, staring right at it, I almost said July 5th. But today is June 5th, 2022. Welcome, uh, one and all. Thank you all so much uh, for sticking with me for 68 episodes plus all the bonus uh, videos and podcasts. I appreciate you so much. I know you are from around the world, so thank you, thank you. And thank you for my new listeners as well. So if this is your first time hearing this podcast, you may be scratching your head and like... I just don't know about this. I don't know what an encyclopedia is. I don't own an encyclopedia. All I use is Google or Wikipedia. I don't even know what what, what this is. Well, all of those uh, are great things to wonder um, and question. The good news is, is you do not have to know what an encyclopedia is. Well, if you want to know, I do have some podcasts. Just go to uh, theoaktreejourneys.com and select on select uh, the encyclopedia challenge and go to my first ones and you'll see what an encyclopedia is but is it it's basically a collection of books with um people uh things uh musical anything you want to know it's just a collection of knowledge basically They're just books and books of, of collected pieces of knowledge you've got history and science uh writers it's pretty cool um but you don't have to own an encyclopedia. You don't have to follow along. You don't have to look for the 1909 New Imperial Encyclopedia and Dictionary that I use or the 1956, uh, the um, Encyclopedia Americana. Uh, you, don't need, you don't need any of those. Um, all you need to do is have a desire to learn new words. Uh, that's it. Um, because my job is to read the entries to you and... I love it. I'm excited. I can't always pronounce these correctly, and my apologies for that. Those of you who've been listening for a really long time know uh, I don't mind if you laugh. That's fine. Um, I know what my weaknesses are. I hope, I hope I've gotten better, but you know, you guys be the judge of that. Um, my regular listeners, you can be the judge of whether or not I've gotten better. Um, and I know if I say I've gotten better, then I'll just stumble all day long. But it's a, this isn't why you're here. You're not here to hear me ramble on and on and on. Uh, so before we get into the entries today, uh, we do have a new quote of the month. Since this is the first Sunday of June, there's a new quote of the month. And I wanted um, a quote about dads and fathers for Father's Day. Don't forget, Father's Day is June 19th. So it's, it's coming up pretty quickly. So June 19th, um, and I did want a quote for this month, uh, but there was not a quote in the new Dictionary of Thoughts. Um, it was kind of weird. I looked up Father's Day, fathers, uh, dads, nothing. Uh, however, I did find a quote by Dr. Thomas Fuller, uh, who I believe lived in the 1600s. Uh, he has a really good quote about men. And I love this because it describes my dad very, very well, or my late dad, my late father, uh, very well. So I was like, you know, it, even though it doesn't say it's for, it, this is a Father's Day quote, I'm going to make it a Father's Day quote because it's really, really good. And uh, it describes a lot of the good fathers out there. Okay, and then, again, this is by Dr. Thomas Fuller. The real difference between men is energy. A strong will, a settled purpose, an invincible determination can accomplish almost anything. And in this lies the distinction between great men and little men. So let me just read that again. The real difference between men is energy, a strong will, a settled purpose, an invincible determination can accomplish almost anything. And in this lies the distinction between great men and little men. And that is our quote of the month in honor of fathers and great men everywhere. And our first set of five entries are ammonia, 
ammonia or hartshorn, ammoniacum or ammoniac, ammonite, and ammonites. And we are strictly in the New Imperial Encyclopedia and Dictionary of 1909 um, until, well, we are, we're only going to the Encyclopedia Americana of 1956 one time today. So we're only in that once. Um, but for the rest of the time, uh, we are in the New Imperial Encyclopedia and Dictionary of 1909. And I've got good news. After the 10th entry, we are switching to book two. I, I'm just so flabbergasted. It seems like we've been in book one forever. Um, well, for 67 and a half, or almost and a half um, episodes. So I'm really excited. We're going to go to book two. And I almost decided to wait until next week. But I was like, nah, let's go ahead and just do it. Okay, so for now, we're still in book one. Uh, so entry number one for t this week is ammonia. And that is a noun, a transparent gas having a strong, pungent, peculiar smell consisting of nitrogen and hydrogen a substance used in medicine and the arts from which hartshorn is made, the volatile alkali. Ammoniac, pertaining to, noun, a gum brought from Persia and used in medicine as an expectorant, uh, ammoniacal, pertaining to ammonia, pungent, ammonium, noun, the supposed metallic base of ammonia, salammoniac, in chemistry, the salt, usually called ammonium chloride, ammonic, yeah, ammonic, uh, denoting a compound whose basic constituent is ammonia, as ammonium carbonate, the common smelling salts of the shops, ammonium chloride or salammoniac, ammonia or gas liquor, a liquid substance produced during the destructive distillation of coal in illuminating gas manufacture, and in general, by strongly heating organic substances containing nitrogen. Okay, and number two is ammonia or hartshorn, or the volatile alkali, and that's NH3. One of the few substances known to the chemistry of the ancients, being referred to by Pliny under the name of veminent odor, which he evolved by mixing lime with nitrum, probably sol ammoniac. It derives its name ammonia from its being obtained from sol ammoniac, which was first procured heating camel's dung ooh, in Libya near the temple of Jupiter Amon. The atmosphere contains a minute quantity of ammonia amounting to 210 to 237 parts in 10, I want to say billion parts of air, which is equal to one volume of ammonia in 28 million of air. It is likewise present in rainwater in variable proportion. The supply of ammonia to the atmosphere is its evolution during the putrefaction of animal and vegetable substances, during the vinous fermentation and the combustion of coal. It is likewise present in respired air and is therefore a product of the daily wear and tear of the animal system. The principal source of ammonia at the present time is the destructive distillation of coal, as in coke making, and also in the manufacture of illuminating gas. Pure ammonia is manufactured from the impure ammonium chloride or sulfate by mixing it with its own weight of slaked lime in a retort and applying a gentle heat when the ammonia as a gas passes over and is received in a vessel containing water. The solubility of ammonia in water is very great, while in volume of water dissolving uh, 1,148 volumes of ammonia gas at 0 degrees Celsius and 760 mm pressure. This solution is the liquor ammonia of the chemist and hartshorn of the shops. Its density is 0.891. The solution of ammonia is transparent, colorless, and strongly alkaline. In taste, it is acrid, acrid caustic, and in odor, very pungent. Applied to the skin in a concentrated form, it blisters. Exposed to the air, the ammonia escapes and the solution thus becomes weaker. On a small scale, ammonia is generally prepared by heating ammonium chloride with slaked lime, the gas being dried by passage over quicklime. Gaseous ammonia can be liquefied under pressure and cold and then 
yields a colorless clear mobile liquid boiling at this is equal to 33.7 degrees Celsius, then below 75 degrees Celsius, it becomes solid. Ammonia combines directly with acids to form salts, thus the crystallized ammonium sulfate, NH42SO4, is much used as a top dressing by farmers and is also mixed with manures when an increase of nitrogenous matter is desirable. Other salts are used in dyeing. Ammonium carbonate is the sol volatile of the druggist, and like the chloride, bromide, etc., is used in medicine. The anhydrous liquefied gas is largely employed for the manufacture of ice and for cooling cold storage de depots. It's, its use depends upon the fact that the gas is very easily liquefied at the ordinary temperature. For example, a pressure of seven atmospheres converts it into the liquid form. In this change, heat is evolved. When the liquefied gas, which has become cooled to the ordinary temperature, is allowed to evaporate, it absorbs from surrounding objects as much heat as it gave out when it was originally compressed. In this way, the same ammonia can be used repeatedly. See refrigeration. In medicine, the gaseous ammonia has been rarely used. The solution of ammonia is employed as a means of rousing the respiratory and vascular systems and for the speedy elevation of spasm. Alleviation of spasm. Not elevation, but alleviation, sorry. There's a huge difference there. It is used also as a local irritant and antacid. It is serviceable in dyspeptic complaints with pre-natural acidity of stomach and flagellants to produce local irritation or destruction of certain parts and to render comparatively harmless the bites of poisonous animals such as serpents and insects. Ammonium is a univalent radical supposed to exist in ammonium salts. These are formed by direct addition of, of an acid to ammonia. When sodium chloride or common salt is produced in a similar way, hydrogen is formed and the same is true of any other metal acting on an acid. It is evident then that ammonium, which is NH4 and not ammonia NH3, is the equivalent in ammonium chloride of sodium and sodium chloride. The solution of ammonia gas and water contains some of the ammonia in combination with the water as ammonium hydroxide, which is NH4OH. The greater part of the gas is, however, simply dissolved. All attempts to isolate this hydroxide have failed as it is reconverted in the easiest manner into ammonia and water. By the action of sodium amalgam on concentrated solution of ammonium chloride, a spongy mass is formed which was long thought to be ammonium amalgam, i.e. a compound of NH4 and mercury. It appears, however, to consist of a solid solution of ammonia and hydrogen and mercury. In medicine, the gaseous ammonia has been rarely used. The solution of ammonia is employed as a means of rousing... Okay, it looks like... Uh... Okay, this, this whole paragraph is just a repeat, so I'm not even going to read it. We just read it. Um, so that's, yeah, that's, uh, that, that's funny. And, and you'll, uh, for my regular listeners, um, you know that we find lots of mistakes uh, in the 1909 uh, version. Uh, if you're new here, uh, you will, you will see that uh, over and over again, usually. Um, and actually, I don't think it's happened in a while, but, uh, but yeah, that's it. It's definitely a huge error there. All right, and number three is ammonia cum or ammoniac, which is a gum resin used in medicine on account of its stimulant and discontinuant qualities obtained from Dorma ammoniacum, a plant of the natural order Embephalera, a native of Persia, a perennial about seven feet high with large doubly pennant leaves. The leaves are about two feet long. The whole plant is abundantly pervaded by a milky juice, which oozes out upon the slightest puncture and which hardens and becomes ammoniacum. The ammoniacum exudes from punctures made by an insect, which appears in great numbers at the time when the plant has attained its full growth. It occurs in commerce, either in tears or in masses formed of them, but mixed with imp impurities. It is whitish, becoming yellow by exposure to the atmosphere, is softened by the heat of the hand, 
It has a peculiar, heavy, unpleasant smell and a nauseous taste. I wonder who's tasting this stuff. At first, mucilaginous and bitter. Afterwards, acrid. It is not fusible, but burns with white, crepitating flame, little smoke, and strong smell. A similar substance is obtained from Furiella tingitana, an amphilarous plant growing on light, sandy soils in the north of Africa, and is said also to be attained from F. orientalis, a native of Asia Minor and of Greece. Both these plants have branched stems and very compound leaves, somewhat resembling fennel. It would seem that the ammoniacum of the ancients was the gum resin of the ferula, which has a more faint odor and less powerful medicinal properties than that of the dorima. And number four, ammonite. Now, one of an extinct genus of cephalopoda, in which the shell is coiled into a flat spiral, so-called from a resemblance to the horns of the statue of the ancient Egyptian god Jupiter Ammon. Ammonita, noun plural, the family of fossil shells of which the ammonite is the type. And number five before break is ammonites, a Semitic race living on the edge of the Syrian desert, descendants of Ben Ami, the son of Lot, Genesis 1938. They inhabited the country lying to the north of Moab between the rivers Arnon and Jacob, i.e. the desert country east of Gad. Their chief city was Rabbath Ammon, to which the Greeks afterwards gave the name of Philadelphia. The Israelites were often at war with them and with their other Bedouin confederates. Jephthah defeated them with great slaughter. They were also overcome by Saul, David, Uzziah, and Jotham. But after the fall of the kingdom of Israel, B.C. 720, spread themselves in all districts of Judea east of the Jordan. In B.C. 582, they were subdued by the Babylonians. After their captivity, they recommenced their feuds with the Jews, but were conquered by Judas Maccabeus, the Maccabees. The intermarriages of Jews with the Ammonites, which had been frequent, were prohibited by Nehemiah. The chief deity worshipped by the Ammonites was named Milcom, who in his character seems to have resembled Moloch. Justin Martyr affirms that in his time, the Ammonites were still numerous. And with that, let's go ahead and go to break. And welcome back. Our next set of five entries are Ammonites, Ammonium, Ammonius, Ammonius Saccus, and Ammophila. And this will conclude... Book one of the encyclopedia, no, I'm sorry, the new Imperial Encyclopedia and Dictionary of 1909, uh, because it went from A, the letter A, to Emophila, or Emophila. So this will conclude book one. So that's exciting. That's worth celebrating. We got through, or we're getting ready to get through an entire book, or book one of uh, a set of encyclopedias. I think that's astounding. Uh, just so astounding, actually. All right, so without further ado, let's go ahead and go to number six, which is Ammonites. And if you want to know how these are spelled, um, go to my website, theoaktreejourneys.com. And this is season one, episode 68, and it'll be Ammonia through Amorpha. So look for that. It'll It's usually all the way down to the bottom or pretty close to the bottom of the Encyclopedia Challenge uh, page. So yeah, some of these um, are not spelled the way that they are sound, the way that they sound, um, or the way that they're pronounced. Okay, so Ammonites, uh, number six, and that this is, we did have Ammonites as number five, but we've got it again as number six. This is a genus of fossil shells nearly allied to the recent genus Nautilus, being like it, chambered and spiral. The molluscus inhabitant appears to have lodged in the last and largest chamber of the, se- of the shell. The space is left behind as it increases in size, being successfully converted into air chambers and all connected by a tube so that the animal could at pleasure ascend or descend into the sea, while the transverse plates dividing the chambers gave strength to the whole structure without great increase of weight. It uh, has long been popularly called 
Cornea monus from a fancied resemblance to the horns on sculptured heads of Jupiter Ammon. They are found throughout the entire series of fossiliferous rocks from the transition strata to the chalk. They abound in the Cretaceous and Oolitic groups. Particular kinds distinguish particular formations, a circumstance which renders them of peculiar interest and importance to the geologist. The number of species is very great, considerably above 200, and several genera have been constituted as Bocalites, Hemites, Scaphites, Turlites, forming the Ammonites and family of Amatita. Ammonites are of very different sizes from a very small size to two or even three or four feet in diameter. The larger ones were in former times ignorantly mistaken for petrified snakes, and impositions have been practiced upon collectors by adding to specimens nicely carved snakes' heads, while the general absence of the heads was popularly accounted for by a legend of a saint decapitating the snakes and turning them into stone. That's actually pretty funny. That's a, that's a pretty cool little story there. And number seven, ammonium. So we did ammonia, now we have ammonium. Uh, and before we go into ammonium, uh, I just want to remind everyone, if you are in this part of Tennessee, the East Tennessee, we are having food today So uh, at church. So if you are in the area, Mountain View Church of Christ in Bluff City, feel free to come. Uh, Sunday school's at 10. Services are at 11 a.m. That's Eastern time. So come on out after services. Uh, we'll go over and have food. The services usually ends around noon. Um, or a little, little after lately, but around noon. So I feel free to come on. By the time this podcast posts, uh, you'll have time. You'll have time to come and eat. And uh, number seven, ammonium, now known as the oasis of Siwa in the Libyan desert. So it has nothing to do with ammonia. This is something completely different. So it's an oasis of Siwa in the Libyan desert, about 150 miles from the Mediterranean, latitude 29 degrees north, longitude 26 degrees east, about 15 miles long by 12 miles broad. In ancient times, it was celebrated on account of the Oracle of Ammon, the unfortunate expedition of Cambyses, and the subsequent journeys of Alexander the Great and Cato. Besides the Temple of Jupiter, placed in the center of a grove of palms, the ruins of which still exist, and which contained an image of the god composed of smergdis and other gems, Ammonium was remarkable for the palace of its ancient kings, surrounded by a triple wall in the very heart of the oasis, and for its, quote, well of the sun, end quote, of which the waters were coldest at noonday and warmest at midnight. That is really interesting. Here the emperor Justinian built a Christian church. So that's pretty cool. Had nothing to do with ammonia. That that was a surprise for me. Number eight is Ammonius. Ammonius, name of several learned men in the later periods of Greek history. Ammonius, the master of Plutarch, who lived during the reign of the emperor Adrian. And like Ammonius, Sacchus taught a species of eclecticism in philosophy. Ammonius, the Christian philosopher of the 3rd century who wrote a harmony of the Gospels. Ammonius, son of Hermias, a peripatetic philosopher of the 5th century and disciple of Proclus. <clears throat> Excuse me. Ammonius, the famous surgeon of Alexandria in the time of Ptolemy Philadelphus. Ammonia, the grammarian, at first high priest in the Egyptian temple sacred to the god Apis, and afterwards, 389, teacher at Constantinople, where he had the church historian Socrates for his pupil. Well, that's pretty neat. Number nine is Ammonius Saccus, died Alexandria in 241. Uh, he was briefly mentioned, if you recall, just, just a moment ago, <laughs> briefly mentioned. He was a Greek philosopher, founder of the Neoplatonic school, said to have been in his earlier days a porter in Alexandria. His parents were Christian, but he himself is said to have abandoned his early religion, in which he had been instructed by Clemens Alexandrinus, and to have devoted himself to the study of heathen philosophy, 
under Athenagoras. Although both Espius and St. Jerome deny that he ever formally apostatized from the Christian faith, his great endeavor was to harmonize through a comprehensive eclecticism the various philosophical theories which prevailed in the Roman world, especially those of Aristotle and Plato. He also labored to amalgamate with these the doctrines of the Magi and Brahms, but instead of boldly announcing the result as his own, he claimed for his system the highest antiquity. His distinguished pupils were Longinus, Heronius, Origen, and Plotinus, the last of whom by far the most subtle and profound of the Neoplatonists always expressed the highest respect for his master. He left no writings at his death. And number 10, and this is the last entry, the very last entry of book one for the New Imperial Encyclopedia and Dictionary of 1909. So number 10 is Emophila, which is a genus of grasses closely allied to Arunda, Arundo, see reed, and distinguished by a spike-like panicle and by the glooms being nearly equal, killed longer than the plea of the single floret, and surrounded at the base by a tuft of hairs. Emophila arundonicea, formerly called arundo arundonicea, a grass about two to three feet high, with rigid bluish leaves, the edges of which are rolled in and very creeping roots. Its native of New Jersey is also of the Great Lakes and the continent of Europe. It is sometimes called sea reed or sand reed, and sometimes mat grass, the columns being wrought into foot mats, coverings for stairs, etc., and the manufacture of which many families residing along the coast of Ireland are employed most of the year. It is also called marum, marum or marum, which the only difference is the spelling, <laughs> by which name it is designated in laws both English and Scottish, by which the destruction of it was prohibited under severe penalties because of its great utility in fixing the shifting sand. In Holland and in Northfolk, it is extensively employed, along with the sea, lime grass, in preserving the banks of sand which prevent the inroads of the sea. It is of little value as food for cattle, although they eat the very young leaves. The fiber has been used instead of flax, but is too short. And with that, we are going to go to break. And when we come back, we will be in book two. That's right, book two of the New Imperial Encyclopedia and Dictionary of 1909. And I could not be more thrilled. So we'll be right back with book two. And welcome back. During break, I proudly put book one away. I am so excited. I've got book two in front of me. It goes from ammunition to escalophus. We're definitely not going to get to escalophus today. Um, but that's what it goes to. So this is, again, the New Imperial Encyclopedia and Dictionary of 1909. And there are a total of 40 volumes. I don't have all 40. Um, I'm hoping to find them. I've got plenty of time. I look every time. Um, I, I, I've been looking for them constantly. I still haven't found them, but we've got plenty of time to find them or, or find another source if we have to. Okay, and number 11 is ammunition, which is a noun, and that means uh, military stores or provisions for attack or defense as powder, ball, shells, etc., etc. Sometimes this name has been given to cannon and mortars and to muskets, swords, bayonets, and other small arms, as well as to the projectiles and explosives used with them. But in modern usage, so modern usage in 1909, got to remember that, generally ammunition denotes only the projectiles and explosives such as shot, shell, gunpowder, gun cotton, ammonocyte, etc., cartridges, fuses, wads, grenades, etc. Fixed ammunition comprises the loaded shells, cartridges, and carcasses. Unfixed ammunition are unfilled case shot, grape shot, and shell. Field ammunition consists of shot, loaded shell, case shot, shrapnel, 
cartridges, priming tubes, matches, port fires, etc., and rockets for rocket batteries. The various compositions required during a siege are generally kept in magazines, ready to be made up as occasion demands, though in time of war it is the practice to have a certain number of rounds prepared and ready for use. In the case of gunpowder, great precaution has to be taken against fire and moisture, and in the case of some of the high explosives, even greater precaution is necessary. Nitroglycerin, for example, is liable to spontaneous ex explosion and is dangerous to handle, and some of the chlorates, which contain sulfur and are therefore liable to explode from slight friction or percussion, have many times the explosive intensity of gunpowder, and in addition are more dangerous to handle. Infantry soldiers generally carry 60 rounds each in their cartridge boxes, similar or larger quantities per man being carried by many wagons. Another supply is kept with the ammunition reserve, and a third supply follows the army in wagons or is kept stored in depot, depots at various points. The making of ammunition for the British Army and Navy is mostly conducted at Woolwich, England. In the U.S., much ammunition is manufactured at Frankfort, Pennsylvania, and near Wil Wilmington, Delaware. For the chief kinds of ammunition, see several titles, shot, shell, etc. Also, cannon, explosives, gunnery, etc. Amnesia is number two. I don't think I went over all of these. Um, the next four are amnesia, amnesty, amnicola, amnigenous. So, amnigenous. Number 12 is amnesia. Noun. Loss of memory, in particular defective memory of words, inability to recall the word that is wanted. Acoustic amnesia is loss of memory of the meaning of words spoken, sometimes called word deafness. Amnesic, amnesic exhibiting the characteristics of amnesia. Number 13, amnesty. Noun, a general pardon of past offenses by a government, an act of oblivion, the effect of it is that the crimes and offenses against the state specified in the act are so obliterated that they can never again be charged against the guilty parties. The amnesty may either be absolute or qualified with exceptions. Instances of the latter are to be found in ancient and modern history. Thus, Thrasybulus, when he overthrew the oligarchia in Athens, caused an amnesty to be proclaimed, from the operation of which the thirty tyrants who had formed the oligarchy and some few persons who had acted under them were excluded. Bonaparte, on his return from Elba in 1815, issued a decree published at Lyons declaring an amnesty from the benefits of which he expected, accepted thirteen persons whom he named. In the act of indemnity passed upon the restoration of Charles II, the persons actually concerned in his father's execution were, as a class, excluded from the amnesty. President Andrew Johnson proclaimed a full pardon and amnesty in 1868, December 25th, to all persons who had either directly or indirectly participated in the rebellion of the southern states against the U.S. government. And number 14, amnicola, or amnicola, cola, noun, Genus of freshwater mollusks, from family Rosida, Amnicolidae, noun, plural. Family of mollusks, of which Amnicola is the type genus, Amnicoline, pertaining to genus Amnicola or family Amnicolidae. That was a mouthful for me. <laughs> number 15. And before we get to number 15, just want to remind everyone, July is coming up. So if you are a writer or you want to dip your toes in writing, Camp NaNoWriMo is coming up. So if you want to go ahead and sign up, I do have the website listed in the description. It's really easy. It's NaNoWriMo.org. Uh, you can just sign up there. It is free. Um, so if you find yourself in a website that's asking you to pay money, uh, that's the wrong website. This is NaNoWriMo.org. It is free. Now, they will ask for donations. Uh, there are donation days, uh, but you're not required to donate to anything. Uh, it is it is fun. Whenever you can, if you can, uh, it is fun to do. Uh, there are certain days that they, I don't know if they do it during the camps, 
Um, but they used to, whenever I participated, they used to have um, specified days where you could win prizes um, if you donated during certain times. And I actually won a prize and my mother won a prize. So that, that was a lot of fun. That was years and years ago, though. Um, but yeah, I just wanted to kind of plug that in there because July is coming up. I know Father's Day's first. Don't forget your father's, which again is June 19th. Um, but then you've got Camp NaNoWriMo in July. Okay, number 15, which is the reason you're here is for these entries. And I lost my place, of course. Amnogenis. Amnogenis. No, Amnogenis. Genus. There we go. It means riverborn originating in a river. That's pretty cool. I like that. And with that, that was number 15. So let's go ahead and go to break. And when we come back, we will again be in book two. And welcome back. I had to grab a bit of coffee because I'm getting a little sleepy and my, my throat's getting a little sore there. Um, our next set of five entries, so entries number 16 through 20, are amnion or amnios, amnion, amoeba, amoeba, and amol. And amoeba is spelled very interestingly uh, in the 1909. It's spelled completely different in the Encyclopedia Americana of 1956. It's spelled the way we normally spell it. So if you are curious about its spelling, I highly suggest you go to my website, theoaktreejourneys.com. And uh, go to Season 1, Episode 68. Uh, just scroll all the way down there. And you can look to see how it's spelled. Uh, the, the amoebas are numbers 18 and 19. So if you're, if you're curious. So let's go ahead and go to amnion or amnios. Or amnios. And that is a noun. And it is an anatomy. The inner membrane covering the fetus. In botany, the covering of the embryo of the seed. Amniota, noun, plural, the vertebrata in which the fetus is furnished with an amnion as reptiles, birds, and mammals. Amniotic, pertaining to. And number 17, we have amnion again. Uh, so this, let's see what this says. The membrane which immediately invests the embryo appearing very early in the development of the latter and adhering closely to it. As gestation proceeds, this membrane secretes from its inner surface a fluid which separates it from the fetus. This fluid, the liquor amni, consists of water with albumin, salt of sodium, and extractive matters in solution. It has a specific gravity of 1008, or, or 10008. It affords very efficient protection to the fetus against injury. And when gestation is completed by projecting the membrane through the mouth of the womb, it seems to dilate this opening and so to prepare the way for the fetus. At this time, the amnion is thin and transparent, slightly flocellant in the side next its developing membrane, the torion, but smooth on the surface next to the fetus. For further particulars, see embryo. For curious superstitions connected with the subject, see call. And that's C-A-U-L. Okay, and number 18, amoeba, noun. And that is, oh, where did it go? I lost it. The proteus amnilicule, so called from the numerous changes of form into which it can throw itself. Amoeba, noun, plural, amoebian, of or pertaining to the amoeba, amoebiform, or, amoebi or amoeboid, resembling an amoeba in form. <laughs> okay, and number 19, amoeba again, the lowest kind of rhizopods and one of the lowest animal structures. The animal is a jelly-like mass without definite shape, nearly uniform in texture, but having a pulsating vesicle. The amoeba feeds by closing around its prey, enfolding it in its own substance, and then digesting it, any un undigested portion being finally protruded. See Proteus vasopoda. And I believe, I don't know if they still do this in school, but I remember 
in science class, we did get to see amoebas, and, and it was really interesting. Okay, and number 20, a mole, I'm sorry if I mispronounced that, a mole, we'll just say a mole, my southern accent is, is having difficulties there, a mole, town of Persia, province of Mazandaram, on the Haraz, a river which flows into the Caspian Sea, 76 miles northeast from Teheran. The town is unwalled, but has good bazaars and is a place of considerable prosperity and wealth. And just a side note for any of you new listeners out there, whenever the writer of these entries has something positive to say, they really, really like it and they really, really mean it because <laughs> they are super biased, um, which I, I find very interesting. The river, which is powerful and rapid, is crossed by a bridge of 12 arches Extensive ruins indicate the former importance of Amol. Its most notable building is the mausoleum of Sayyid Khomen Uddin, king of Sari and Amol, who died in 1378. In the suburbs are a grand palace, which once belonged to Shah Abbas, and three towers said to have been temples of the ancient Kubris, or fire worshippers. The inhabitants of Amol cultivate rice and cotton, or are employed in the iron forges and cannon foundries of the district. Popular in winter, when greatest estimated 35,000 or 40,000, in summer, many of the inhabitants retire to summer residences in the mountains, which on the south approach within about five or six miles of the town. Okay, and with that, let's go ahead and go to break. And welcome back. Our next set of five entries are Amomum, Among, Amontan, Giami, Amor or Amur, and Amar. And number 21 is Amomum, so Amomum, which is a genus of plants of the natural order Scitaminia or Zingaborchia, distinguished by perennial stems. The flowers and close heads resembling cones. It contains a number of species, natives of tropical countries, chiefly in the east, of which several-yield cardamoms, I'm sorry, several-yield several cardamoms and several grains of paradise. The genus Momum formerly included species now forming the genus Zingaber, or sea ginger, etc. Number 22 is among... There's a fungus among us, is what my dad used to say. So among um, is, or amongst, so we have among or amongst, mingled or conjoined with. So mingled or conjoined with. Let me go ahead and fix my little sheet here, my cheat sheet, and put amongst on there. So a very short word and a very short definition to go with it. Number 23 is actually from the only one today from the Encyclopedia Americana of 1956. And this is the, our, our first person uh, today, actually our only person uh, for this week. And it's, he is Amonton Giayami, or Giayami Amonton. Um, and I hope I'm saying his name right. Uh, for the spelling of his name, again, go to theoaktreejourneys.com and uh, select Encyclopedia Challenge and go to Season 1, Episode 68. And his name is number 23. So, I mean, his name is not number 23, but he's number 23 in the list. Okay, so he's a French physicist, born Paris, August 31st, 1663. He died there October 11th and 17, oh, excuse me, in 1705. He devoted himself particularly to the improvement of instruments employed in physical experiments. In 1687, he presented to the Academy of Sciences a hydrometer of his own invention, and in 1695, he published his only book. I'm not sure what it says. Uh, it's something about um, experiments. Experiences in physics, well, in the construction of a cylinder, and barometers, thermometers, and hydrometers. So I'm not even going to attempt 
to say that, but it's it's a remarkable experiences in physics um, with constructing um, new um, new barometers, thermometers, uh, and hydrometers is basically what it says. And in a clepsider, I'm not sure what that is. Um, anyway, in 1699, he published some investigations on friction. And in 1702 to 1703, two noteworthy papers on thermometry. He experimented with an air thermometer in which the temperature was defined by measurement of the length of a column of mercury. And he pointed out that the extreme cold of such a thermo thermometer would be that which reduced the spring of the air to nothing, thus being the first to recognize that the use of air as a therm thermometric substance led to the inference of the existence of a zero of temperature. In 1704, he noted that barometers are affected by heat as well as by the weight of the atmosphere, and in the following year, he described barometers without mercury for use at sea. So we take thermometers for granted, um, at least I do, and we've got thermometers for everything now. You've got meat thermometers, you've got air thermometers, you've got all these thermometers, but just think about for a second what it took to get to the point where we're at now. It took a lot. So I think that's really interesting. I always love to read about uh, inventors uh, in, in every area. Um, in the sciences and, and writing and stuff. Uh, art. Uh, art has some inventors too. And number 24, we go back to the New Imperial Encyclopedia and Dictionary of 1909, and that's where we will stay for the remaining uh, uh, entries. We have Amor or Amur. Let's see if I can find my place. Okay, here it is. It's a river formed by the junction about latitude 53 degrees north and longitude 120 degrees east of the Shilka and the Ergon both which come from the southwest. The former rising in Russian Siberia, near the headwaters of the Yenisea, and the latter in Chinese Tatari, not far from the sandy plateau of Kobe. From this starting point, it presents on its right a tolerably symmetrical curve, which after receiving at its most southerly point the Sangari from beyond the wall of China, besides other considerable feeders on both sides of either segment, enters on nearly its original parallel, the Gulf of Segalion, about a degree below the Sea of Akotsk, properly so called. Its basin comprehends about 766,000 square miles, and its length is about 2,500 miles. Steamboats of light draught ascended as high as Oost-Strelka, at the junction of the Shilka, and that river is navigable for boats to the foot of the Yambulonil range in eastern Siberia, part of which lies in the basin of Amor. The Russians, after conquering Siberia in the 16th century, turned their attention immediately to the advantages which the possession of this river offered. The territory and the people had always been under possession of China, or in some connection with China, the people sometimes tributaries, at other times conquerors. As early as 1636, Russian adventurers made excursions into the Chinese territories of the Lower Amur. In 1666, they built a fort at Albazine and succeeded in navigating from that fort to the mouth of the river. In 1685, the fort was taken and destroyed by the Chinese, but was retaken promptly by the Russians, who, however, abandoned it and the whole of the Amor to the Chinese. But Russian writers did not cease to keep alive in the minds of their fellow subjects that the lower Amor belonged to them, and the fur hunters of Siberia, encouraged by government, continued to pursue their vocation on Chinese ground. In 1854 to 1856, two military expeditions were conducted by Count Morfeif, who twice descended the Amor, by the mouth of the Shilka, unopposed by the Chinese. This was during the Crimean War. On the arrival of news of peace, the Russians were left to strengthen their positions at the mouth and other parts of the Amur. In 1857, Count Putiatin endeavored in vain to obtain from China concessions on the river in favor of Russia. 
1858, the war between China and Great Britain and France induced China to agree to the Treaty of Tientsin, which by, by which the boundaries of Russia and China were defined. Several towns were, as the result, established by the former of these two powers on the left bank of the Amur, of which the largest are Kaborka and Sultsk, and an Amur trading company was established. In 1860, after the occupation of Peking by the British and French in less than a month after Lord Elgin and Baron Gross had affixed their signatures to the peace conventions at Peking, General Ignatieff secured the signature of Prince Kung to a treaty by which Russia acquired the broad and wide territory comprised between the River Amur and the mouth of the Tumen, extending 10 degrees of latitude nearer the temp temperate regions and running from the shore of the North Pacific east to the banks of the River Usiri, a principal affluent of the Amur. An enormous advantage to Russia of this acquisition of territory was the fact that it conferred on that country the advantage of harbors on the Pacific in a comparatively temperate latitude, where navigation is impended by ice for at most three or four months a year. On the Bay of Passiet, to the south of this region, lying at a point where the Russian, Chinese, and Korean frontiers adjoin each other, there are a large trading town and a military station. Sixty or seventy miles north is the important harbor of Vladivostok or Rule of the East, or Port May, which in 1872 was placed in telegraphic communication with Europe by the China Submarine Cable, and is now the capital of the Amur provinces. The island of Saglion, lying immediately north of the Japan Group, along a portion of the coast of Asiatic Russia, and formerly possessed partly by Russia and partly by Japan, in 1875 was taken entire possession of by the former, and in 1900, September, Russia took armed possession of the right bank of the river. And number 25. <laughs> so, Amor. So, I have another Amor, but it's spelled differently. It's the god of love. So, Amor, the god of love among the Romans, equivalent to the Greek Eros. He had no place in the national religion of the Romans, who derived all their knowledge of him from the Greeks. According to the later mythology, Amor is the son of Venus and Mars, the most beautiful of all the gods, a winged boy with bow and arrows, sometimes represented blindfolded. So that's where we get our little Cupid there. His arrows inflict the wounds of love, and his power is formidable to gods and men. He is not always a playful child in the arms of his mother, but appears sometimes in the bloom of youth, for example, as the lover of Psyche. He is brother of Hymen, the god of marriage, whom he troubles much by his thoughtlessness. According to the earlier mythology, he is the oldest of all the gods and existed before any created being. In English, the god of love is less frequently called Amor than Cupid. So there we go, Cupid. Yet with the ancients, Cupido denoted properly only the animal desire. Ooh, so there you go. So let's, let's keep that in mind next time we use the word Cupid. <laughs> And with that, um, let's go ahead and go to break. And welcome back. Our last set of five entries are Amorgo, Amorites, Amoroso, Amorous, and Amorpha. And again, we are completely in the New Imperial Encyclopedia and Dictionary of 1909 book Two. So, congratulations for sticking with us. Uh, we, are, we are in book two, so yay! I'm so excited. And number 26 is Amorgo. And uh, it is an island in the Grecian archipelago, one of the eastern Cyclades, 22 miles long, 5 miles broad. Area 106 square miles, has a town of the same name, with a castle and a large harbor, Population 5,000. So that's all they have to say about that. Uh, but number 27 is Amorites. And before we get into Amorites, I just want to remind everyone, I don't think I, I've reminded anyone uh, recently or in the past few episodes, but if you have a word that you uh, just love and you want to know more about, it could be a person, a place, a thing, 
whatever, an animal. If you have a word you want to know more about and you want to hear a bonus podcast on it, uh, just let me know. Uh, you can email me at mandyoaks at protonmail.com or you can go to my contact page on my website, theoaktreejourneys.com, and both of those are in the description below of this podcast. And it's the same with uh, if you have a word that you don't like that may grate on your nerves, we can do that too. I haven't gotten enough to do a bonus um, on on words we don't like <laughs> uh, yet. I, I don't know if that's something anyone's really interested in. And only uh, one person's shown interest. So I need more. If you are interested in, in finding out what words um, people don't like and why, and please include why. Um, so if you want to know, just uh, send me your words and the reason why you don't like it. And let me know if you want me to mention your name on the podcast, and I'll just mention your first name. But if you don't want me to mention your name at all, please definitely let me know. But I, I just wanted to plug that in there because I don't think I've said it in a while. Um, but I am I am curious about, uh, about the words that you want me to do bonuses on, uh, whether you like them or don't like them. And you can even tell me if you like words or why and why you like them. Okay, number 27, Amorites. A powerful nation of Canaan on both sides of the Jordan. They were vanquished by the Hebrews under Moses, and their lands beyond Jordan were distributed among the tribes of Gad, Reuben, and Manasseh. Their two most famous kings were Sihon, king of Heshbon, and Og, king of Bashan. Og was the last of the giants, or at least of the gigantic race, the Rephium. Joshua subdued, but did not wholly exterminate the Amorites in Canaan. The residue of this people became tributary under Solomon. See Genesis 10, 15-20 and 25, 19-21. Then Numbers 13, 29 and 21, 13. Deuteronomy 20, 16. Deuteronomy 22, 31 and Joshua 9. And number 28 is Amoroso. So Amoroso. And this is in music. So, amoroso means affectionately, tenderly. So, if you see amoroso in music, you want to make, make sure you're, you're um, putting affection and tenderness into it. I, just, I love that, amoroso. absolutely love that. Amorous, another word I really like. So, number 29 is amorous. Ah, amorous, full of love. So, we've had... What's amor, and now we have, and we had amoroso, and now we have amorous. So full of love, amorous, from Latin amor, love, uh, fond, loving, inclined to love, amorously, fondly, lovingly, amorousness, fondness, being inclined to love, amoret, noun, and amorous woman, love, knots, or flowers, synonym of amorous, loving, Fond, passionate, tender. Love that. Love all of those words. Those are nice words. And number 30, our very last entry of this week, is Amorpha. And all it says is C indigo. So we have to wait until we get to the eyes to find out what Amorpha means. Unless you want me to do a bonus on Amorpha, in which case let me know. Uh, either via my email or my contact page on my website. And both links are in the description below. Uh, before I let you go, don't forget, if you are in the area, uh, Mountain View Church of Christ in Bluff City, Tennessee, food today, uh, join us for either Sunday, uh, well, both Sunday school and church, 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time, and then food later around uh, noonish, a uh, little afternoon, probably, and uh I mean, look to see if there's anything else. Uh, oh, in July is Camp NaNoWriMo. So if you want to do something like that, just go to NaNoWriMo.org. And if you want a Teespring, or if you want a, a shirt or a mug, um, go to my Teespring store. Uh, that link is also in the description below. And if you've missed any past podcasts, they are listed on my website, theoaktreejourneys.com. And feel free to browse the bonuses. I've got some books on there as well. 
Um, go to Encyclopedia Challenge if you want to browse the podcasts. And there's also a list of podcasts that this should be listed under. Um, but with that, uh, before we go, uh, let's go over our quote one more time. This is by Dr. Thomas Fuller, who lived in, I believe it was the 1600s, said the real difference between men is energy, a strong will, a settled purpose, an invincible determination can accomplish almost anything. And in this lies the distinction between great men and little men. Again, this is for Father's Day, Fathers Everywhere, uh, since I couldn't find find one. Uh, but I'm going to read that again because I really like it. Dr. Thomas Fuller said, The real difference between men is energy, a strong will, a settled purpose, an invincible determination can accomplish almost anything, and in this lies the distinction between great men and little men. And with that, I hope everyone has a blessed week. Thank you again for joining me, and I bid you adieu.